Amen. Hey, well, thank you, Kevin. And uh, well, my name is Tim Rogers, lead pastor here at Grace Point Church. And I want to thank uh, Greg Petersheim for taking the past couple Sundays speaking here, and then Adam Nagel, who also spoke. Um, me and my family were in the DR on a missions trip and in Barbados on family vacation after that, which is where I grew up as well. So it was very fun to be home for a little bit. Um, well, uh, this week, as I was getting back into the swing of things, I had a little problem. I have a, a knee issue that has been bothering me, and I found myself in the doctor's office on Friday getting ready for a shot in my knee, which is a lot of fun. If you've never gotten shot in your knee in two different areas, you should try that on a Friday morning. And as the doctor um, injected um, basically my blood back into my own body on Friday... Um, I was sitting there reclining in this chair. It was kind of like a dentist chair without the arms, and they kind of leaned me back and decided then to put me up when I was done and kept asking me how I'm feeling. I said, fine, fine, fine. So we're done. So the doctor's done. She does her thing. She leaves. And then the nurse is like, hey, let's, or the assistant in there was like, let's reschedule, you know, your checkup, your six-week checkup. I'm like, sounds good. So I'm looking at my calendar on my phone and, and, you know, line it up for August 23rd or whatever it is. And I said, okay. I said, you know what? I feel like I'm going to throw up, which is weird because I like never throw up. And she said, "Ooh, let me go get the emesis back," and I learned what the word emesis means. Um, and so then, um, as soon as I said that, then I began to feel this tingling sensation, kind of like pins and needles, right through my uh, arms and legs. And then the next thing I know, I'm opening my eyes, and above me are people I have no idea who they are, and I am totally lost. I'm sitting there in that moment, and I'm waking up from passing out, and my head felt like it weighed 100 pounds. I was like in a cold sweat kind of thing, and my first, I wasn't saying anything yet, but I opened my eyes, and there's a lady standing here, then another one over here, there's four people, and I'm like, what is happening? Like, who are you? I'm thinking, well, I'm dreaming, clearly. I'm dreaming, I didn't say anything, and I'm dreaming, and I'm like, Maybe I was taken prisoner somewhere. This is weird. Why was I, why was I taken prisoner? I, this is strange. I don't, and they seem nice for, anyway. Like I had, and I had zero orientation. I had no ability to figure out what was happening, completely, totally disoriented. Then I looked to my right, and here's this lady. I'm like, I don't know who you are. And I looked to my left, and I'm like, hey, that's the doctor who shoots me in the knee. I'm like, oh, that's the doctor who shoots me in the knee. And then it slowly came back to me, and it was a long, like, eight seconds. But all these things went through my mind. And I rarely, rarely, but sometimes, but rarely feel so ridiculously disoriented, unable to get a hold of any truth, unable to actually trust even myself to make a decision or assess a situation. And it is scary to be in that moment. It is uh, scary to be looking at a situation and have no idea how to read it and how to make a decision going forward. And here's what I believe is true, that all of us, all of us, need to have a place, need to have a place that we're able to place our confidence so that we can make decisions. In other words, let me put it this way, we are all creatures who are dependent on trust. We are dependent on trust to make every decision that we ever make. Our days are full of micro-decisions that, believe it or not, we often don't verbalize it this way, but are actually decisions built on assuming trust. For example, you woke up this morning at a particular time that you believed was the right time for you, or not, depending on how many times you hit snooze. 
but last night you set that alarm for a particular reason because you trusted that that would be the right time to get up. And you're eating what you're currently eating because you trust that that will get you to the, whatever, the satisfaction you want, just in terms of, I like food, so I'm going to eat it all. Or maybe I want to trim down, so I'm going to eat different kinds of food. You're trusting that the decisions you are making are helping guide you and lead you somewhere in some direction. Every little decision we make throughout the day is actually built on an assumption that I can trust the decision I make because I'm anchoring that trust either to my own assessment of my life or someone else's recommendation that you should now live this way. For example, if you're parenting, maybe you're reading a parenting book or a conference or whatever, and you're like, ooh, we're going to try this person's method of potty training. Ooh, let's try potty training in two days, see if that works. You know? So we're trusting different ideas. Every little decision we make throughout our lives is built on this assumption that we can have a place to anchor our decisions, what I'm calling trust, that I trust something, either myself someone else or a set of beliefs or whatever. Now the problem with trust, the problem with this is, is this. I don't have a problem that we all make these micro decisions throughout the day. We have to to survive good grief. What I want to identify is that many times we make these decisions without realizing where our trust is actually located. We make the decisions blindly assuming that the, the locus of our authority, that the place that we anchor our trust is actually good and trustworthy. The problem with that, of course, is that if you have ever had regret in your life, you know that there was a time in your life when you trusted a decision you made and later on thought, I shouldn't have trusted the decision that I made. Which puts us in an interesting conundrum, just like I did when, I, when Jen and I were dating. Some of you know this. My wife and I have been married um, 21 years now. I think that's right. Is that right? Just say yes. Okay. 21 years. And right before we got engaged, um, I started freaking out internally, and I had this little like internal whatever going on. I thought, oh, I don't know if I can do this, and the commitment level just rose in me, and I kind of panicked. And so then I, I broke up with her. Well, I regret that. But in that moment, in that day, I'm like, I think this seems like a good idea, right? And then days later, I'm like, I think that was a bad idea, you know, that I, that I had on Monday, and now it's Friday. Can I undo what I did on Monday? Because there are times when we say, we say you know, I need to make this decision, I trust that this actually is the right thing given all the circumstances, and later we come back, we're like, no, 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 it wasn't a good spot to anchor the trust, it wasn't a good idea. And so all of us have that. And so what I want to do in this series that we're in, that brand new series that I'm simply calling Trust Me, I want to raise up for all of us the idea again of what does it actually look like to anchor our hope and anchor our confidence in a, in a trust in God that is deeper than just a Sunday school trust where we kind of close our eyes and hope and maybe rainbows and unicorns show up and you know, all is right in the world and everything works out. But what does it actually look like to trust God at an adult level of faith? What does it look like to trust God through the deep struggles that you have and that I have? What does it mean to actually trust God and understand where trust begins, the genesis, the origin of trust and faith, how we even think about faith and trust on the whole? What does it look like to, to choose trust or not trust? What about when things don't actually work out anywhere close to what we might have hoped? And what drives trust and what challenges it? And what is the greatest thing about trust that it that, um, the greatest thing about our heart that trust reveals. So I'm looking forward to in this series kind of raising up this issue of trusting and talking about it with you and giving you some things I hope to think about. And what I want to do is actually look at someone um, in the Bible named Abraham, who is one of the greatest men of faith that I know of, who's got an incredible story. I want to spend six weeks with you in his life 
and look at how we can understand at a deeper level what it looks like and what it means to trust. Because my hope for you and my hope for me is that my trust to orient me every day is going to be driven into the God of my faith and not just into the unknown decisions that I might make or that I might hear from one person or the other. So I want to jump in with you to the story of Abraham. To do that, I want to invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Genesis chapter 12. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's no problem. There's a pew uh, that you're on or around and underneath you or right in front of you, there's a Bible and we'd be glad to have you, um, you know, open that up to the first book there called Genesis. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you, by the way. We'd be glad to have you take that Um, take that home with you. But Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to begin. Very first book um, in the Bible there, as I said. And and I love the way that Genesis 12 begins, and uh, we're just going to read the first five verses. But here's, here's what we're reading. I'm reading from what's called the New International Version. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Verse 4. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Okay, that's going to be what we're going to look at. And I want you to back up for a minute um, to the first verse, first verse of Genesis chapter 12. Here's what it says. I'm going to throw some of this on the screen. It's going to be also in front of you on your tablet or your phone or your Bible, printed version, whatever you got. But the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. And so the first thing he says, he engages Abram and he says, I want you to go from, I want you to leave from, you're here and I want you to go. I want you to go from, he says, I want you to go from your country. And then he says, I want you to go from your people. And then he says, I want you to go from your father's household. And if you're observing that, that's actually a movement from really broad to really narrow. So it's general to specific, kind of like a bullseye target. Go from your country. That's the largest relationship you may have to your country. And we all kind of have a a country identification. You might call yourself, like when I grew up in Barbados, I felt some national pride that, you know, hey, I'm a a Bayesian or Barbadian, but I'm really not because I'm American. But I was born in Grenada, so I don't know really what country I'm a part of. But, you know, you kind of feel some of that national pride. Like he's saying, I want you to leave that. I want you to leave that broadest thing. Then, then your people is the next thing. The people that you associate with, the people that you enjoy, the people that you can resonate with. Those people, I want you to, I want you to leave them as well. And just to drive it even home further, I want you to leave your family's household. Remember all the holidays you spent together, Thanksgiving, Christmas, the routines you have around Easter and you know where you hide your Easter baskets and all that. Like I want you to leave the routines of your family. Not just your country, not just your people, but your family. Like, I want you to leave it all. And he's just driving it home further, further, further to Abraham saying, I want you to leave it all. And he leaves it really unknown. And he says, I want you to go to, in this future, to the land that I will show you. Just trust me on this one. <laughs> leave all that's known, country, people, family, and go to a place, trust me, I'll tell you where it'll be at. It's an interesting decision for a man who's 75 years old to make a call to do this. But Abram decides to do it, and it's interesting to see what he does and why he does it. But in in truth, Abram's father, believe it or not, was actually told to go to Canaan, and he stopped. 
and we read that in chapter 11 of Genesis, but Abram came from a family who was on their way to Canaan. His father stopped before they got to Canaan, and God continues to move Abram now on into Canaan. And then he makes this promise in verses 2 and 3, and, and look what he says here. He says, I will make you into, and he begins this way, he said, I'm going to make you into a, a great nation. Now, if you know the story of Abraham, you may have heard this before, but you've got to get in context with me for a minute. Like, this is a man who has no children right now, right? Hey, by the way, you who have no kids, he said, Abraham, and you're almost dead, you know, 75 years old, right? Uh, I'm going to make you, that was supposed to be funny, at least somewhat, okay? Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you with no kids, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Like, that is ludicrous. I'm going to make you, who's going to do that? And then he's like, oh, and, and I, will, I will bless you. Now, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but if you have ever wanted God to be on your side, if you ever prayed that little prayer like I have as a kid and you know, not as a kid sometimes, I'm like, God, can you just please look out for me here? Can you help me here? Can you just give me what I need? Can you give me the wisdom and direction I need? What you're asking for and what I'm asking for is the blessing of God. Like, Will you please bless me? Will you help me? Will you look over my family? Will you look over my future? Will you give me clarity and wisdom and direction? You're asking for the blessing of God. And God is saying, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I'm, you don't even need to ask me. I'm just going to bless you. That's profound. I'm going to bless you. And then he goes on. The next thing, I, I'm going to make your name great. If you ever wanted to make sure that when you die, people actually think about you in a positive way and not as if you're some like, lifelong loser, like here's what Abram is being promised. Your name is going to be great. Your reputation will be strong. I mean, we're talking about a reputation that will exceed the generation that he lives in. The very reality is we are talking about Abraham today, thousands of years after he died. I doubt a single person on the planet will be talking about me thousands of years after I die. Maybe they will about you, but I doubt about me. But here we are talking about Abraham. I think this promise came to you. I'm going to make your name great. Your reputation will be strong. And then he goes on. He says, you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth, he says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Let me ask you, does it get any bigger than that? <laughs> Like, every human being on the planet will be best because of you. <laughs> How much bigger is their promise than that? Like, not just this county will be better, or your school will be better because you're in it, and this community is better because you're in it, your family's better. No, we're actually talking about, think of the global population. Yep, all of them are going to be blessed through you. Oh. So, what does Abram do? Packs up the car and leaves. That's what he does. That's what he does. We see it in verse 4. We just read it. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he sent out uh, from Haran. And I want you to notice one more thing about this before we ask a couple questions about the text. If you look at the, the text again, I'm going to highlight it on the screen just to draw it out for us. Um, and we're going we're gonna to jump into English grammar for a minute. So if you, there's, I know a lot of you are really into grammar. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yep, I got, I got few of us give a rip about grammar, but it does matter, and here's why it matters, because let me go back just for a minute. We have subject, verb, direct object. Billy kicked the ball. Billy's the subject. Kicked is the verb, and ball is object. This is almost going to matter in a minute. But Billy, subject, ball, object. 
The subject does the action of the sentence, and the object is that which is acted upon. Okay, that's, there you go. Now you can pass English class, whatever. It's very important to understand who's doing the action, who's receiving the action in this little promise thing that we just read. So check it out here. All the red words, you'll, you'll see it over and over again, five times, and, and actually in verse one he says the same thing, but he says, I will. God's like, I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. He's just kind of saying, I, I'm going to kick the ball. I'm the subject of this promise. I will do this for you. I will, look at it again, you see it up here. I will make you, and then you is the object. I, I will make you into a great nation. Oh, and I will bless you. By the way, I will make your name great, not you. I'm going to do that part of it. And you'll be a blessing, but the result, you're going to be a blessing because of what I have done for you. I'm the subject of this whole thing. I will bless those who bless you, not you. You're not going to be the blessed. I'm going to start this whole thing. And, and whoever curses you, I will be the one who does the cursing, not you, Abraham. I'm going to be the one who handles that. And everything here, God is the one who's saying, I will, I will, I will. And the truth is, this is I will unconditional. This is I will not because you're awesome. This is I will just because I will. This is a profound truth about Abraham's engagement with God from the beginning, that Abraham is sitting there, essentially, we have no other context except to understand it this way. Abraham is just living, he's 75 years old. He's just going through his life, and then God shows up and says, hey, I know you were planning on doing the shepherding thing today, or whatever you were planning to do. By the way, here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and people everywhere, everywhere, every person on the earth will be blessed through you. I just need you to go for now. Trust me, I'll show you where to go. And Abram goes. Now, I ask the question around this issue. What is the basis, okay? What is the basis of Abraham's trust? Why would he trust? Because this is his first trust decision. He has to make a decision. Do I actually do what God wants me to do? do he wants me to go. Do I go or do I not? This is the first little baby step of his trust. And clearly he makes a decision to go. Why? The question on the table for me this morning is, what is the basis of trust? If I'm going to ask you to consider trusting God, what I want to look at with Abraham is a question of why did Abraham trust God at all? What started it for him? You know, what was behind it? What was underneath it? Why did he go when he didn't really have to? Before I can answer that one, I have to ask another question because Abraham isn't actually the subject of the faith, right? Subject, verb, object. God is the subject of this whole thing, right? I will, I will, I will. God is the one who starts this, doesn't he? He comes to Abraham first. Abraham didn't appeal to God and ask him, can you please make me a great nation? God isn't responding to Abraham's plea. Abraham isn't the subject, he's the object. He's the one acted upon. God is the one who started. So for me, I have to ask, before I ask, how is it that, what is the basis of Abraham's faith? I have to ask, why, why would God choose Abraham in the first place? Why does God engage Abraham at all? Because God is the one who seems to start this, not Abraham. And that's another question. Why did God choose Abraham? Why didn't he choose Lot? What's wrong with Lot? He's got a shorter name. It's easier to say, you know, easier to market. We can go with Lot. You know, it makes a lot of sense. Why did he choose Abraham? Why not Sarah? I mean, she seems like a nice lady. I don't know. Why, why Abraham? The, the truth is, in the scriptures, we don't get an answer to that. Not explicitly. 
We don't have a verse we can go to and say, and this is why God chose Abraham, blah, 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 blah. We have some people who guess, well, he chose Abraham because he knew he'd be faithful. Okay? He knew he'd be a faithful man who wouldn't, whatever, you know, really screw it all up. Maybe. To me, that doesn't satisfy. The reason it doesn't satisfy is because of what God did. I mean, let me ask you in your experience. If, if someone were to show up to your day tomorrow morning or after church here today before lunch and said, you know what? Hi, my name's whatever. I want to do something for you. I know we don't know each other really well, and I don't actually know your history. I don't really care about that, but I want you to know I'm going to make you a great person. I want to give to you all the things that you actually need for success. By the way, I anticipate that you're going to fail, because we all do, but I really don't care about that, because I want you to know that what I'm giving you, my guarantee, is actually unconditional. It's not dependent upon your success or your performance. I am going to do this through you. I will make you into a great person. I will make your reputation last. I will bless everyone who is connected to you, and I'm going to do it because I'm going to do it, not because you're awesome. Now, I have to ask the question, if that's how God engaged Abraham, and it sure does seem like it is, because God is the subject, not the object, what do I call that? And I call that grace. I call that Total, total grace. That God, we don't see anywhere in the scriptures, anywhere laid out, that God chose Abraham because he was going to be faithful. In fact, Abraham wasn't always faithful. Abraham wasn't always making the right decisions. We'll see that throughout his life. He put his wife at great risk, made decisions that I question, why would you ever do that if you're a man of honor and respect? So he had his own failings. But why would God choose him? The only answer that satisfies me, at least, and you can decide what satisfies you, is what I see God doing when someone comes and provides an unconditional promise or guarantee without tying it to your future performance. I call that straight-up grace, which is why I want to make this contention. I want to give it to you to think about here this morning. I want to make the contention this, that grace is the starting point of trust that lasts that grace is the starting point of trust that lasts. And let me explain that. There's a lot of things for you and for me that compete for our trust. There's a lot of things that offer promises and invite you to trust them. Take just, for example, the work that you do. Your work and my work invites my trust and makes me promises. It makes you promises too. It promises me that I will get a paycheck at the end of the month. It promises you the same thing too. It also promises you some degree of meaning or satisfaction. At least this is what it seems to promise. Work offers this to us. And, and some of these things are good and necessary. It makes promises to you that you will find satisfaction, that you will be honorable you know, as long as you perform. As long as you show up, as long as you do what you're supposed to do at work. Now some of you, your work is actually paid, and some of it you work at home as a homemaker or some other way. It's great, similar concept. Work is something that invites you to trust it. Okay, I'm going to trust my meaning and significance to you, work. But then the reality is I have to perform to maintain that trust. Because you won't deliver your promise if I don't perform. Uh, hobbies are the same thing. Hobbies invite my trust and make promises to me. Hobbies tell me, like, uh, I enjoy athletics, I enjoy cycling, many of you know that. I hate running, I think it's a terrible idea, but some people like that. But for, for me, like, 
Hobbies are not built on grace, right? Like there's, there's no grace in my world of, hey, don't bother exercising and all, but if you want to enter a race, you're going to be awesome because I'm going to make you successful. Ha! Huh. No way. No way. You better prepare for that or you're not going to do well. But it, if you prepare, I, here, here's how you can trust me, Hobby. Like if you prepare, I will deliver to you what you want. You want to feel like you had a great time. You want to have your adrenaline rush, whatever it is. If you're a singer, if you're a musician, you want to make a regional chorus, and there's a promise out there of like, if you do this, you will get to that point. But it isn't based on grace. And you know that, and I know that. And we don't have a problem with that. It just isn't based on grace. It's based on work. So you better get the job done. Show up and work and perform. Even a romantic relationship, right? I mean, the first time you laid eyes on your significant other or someone you're interested in right now, by and large, that actually wasn't grace. It was more like, whoa. Right? Whoa. And it wasn't like, whoa, that's grace. It's like, whoa. And you notice something because they took time either to get themselves together, they took time to serve you, they took time to be kind to someone else, whatever it was. That's not grace, it doesn't bother me, and it's not, it just isn't grace. Those relationships hopefully build toward grace, but their origin isn't grace. Their origin is, oh, she looks great, he looks great, she's kind, he's kind, they're compassionate, they're people of faith, whatever it is that drew you, it wasn't just, oh, they have been so unusually gracious to me. It's just, wow, there's something there, and as long as she continues to do that and he continues, then we can build a relationship. Even major world religions are, are not actually established, first of all, on grace. In fact, if you don't perform, if you don't pray five times a day, if you don't go to, uh, you know, if you don't travel to Mecca, let's say, if you aren't involved in um, controlling your thoughts and, and uh, you know, submitting your desires, world religions are constantly calling us to perform in order to get the promises that they say they deliver. So here's where I say this, that, that most things we trust and deliver only in relation to our performance. That's just the way it is. Most things that we tend to trust in, I trust in the work, hobbies, blah, 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 and, and I get that, they have their place, but they're only trustworthy enough in relation to my performance with them. As long as I go to work, as long as I groom myself, as long as I'm, you know, smell at least decent with, you know, among you and, and have good relationships, and maybe we can have a, a good relationship. I mean, so most things that we trust in uh, deliver their promises in relation to my performance to maintain, which leads to this conclusion. This means that we are actually, believe it or not, we are actually trusting most of the time in ourselves. This is a very important little principle I want to land on, that most of the things that we trust in and most of the time we trust, believe it or not, we actually are trusting in ourselves. I, I trust that I can maintain the things that I need to maintain in order to find my way to God. Christians do this all the time, and we struggle with this, I struggle with this. We will mix and match promises of God with promises that, that I make. If you've ever felt like, oh, I'm not close to God right now, maybe it's because I haven't been in church recently. I am not close to God, and maybe it's because I haven't been reading the Bible as much as I should. You know, I, I don't feel like he's listening to me. It's probably because, um, you know, I, whatever, you know, I've been binge-watching that show on, on Netflix, and I don't think if God were sitting here next to me, he'd want me watching that, so maybe that's what it is. Maybe. But maybe we've also begun to mix our understanding of who God is and how he even begins to relate to us 
to our normal mode of thinking about the world. Because God engages Abraham at the point, at the, the genesis of Abraham's faith, is this. He's, he's saying, whoa, there is a God who so ridiculously, graciously offered me this promise, and he's saying, I will do this? So then let me not mix my performance and behavior with God. Like, he is going to do this. The starting point of the relationship is total grace. And this is why when Jesus comes to the planet, and Paul writes later in the little book of Ephesians, this is why when Paul writes, he writes this, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I'm going to skip to this. Here we go. That for it is by grace, he says, you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. See, Abraham's starting point is the same as my starting point is the same as your starting point of trust. That God has come in in an unusually, ridiculously gracious way, has said, I don't care what your future holds. Like, I don't care if you're going to fail or not fail. I don't have an agenda for you. I just want you to know, I'm going to do these things. I want to invite you along. I want to invite you along, but I'm the subject of the sentence. I'm the one who's going to. And I just want to know if you can trust me that I am going to graciously provide this for you. I want you to, I'm going to put it this way, try to imagine a relationship where someone chooses you, has no hidden agenda for you, demands nothing from you, and wants only the best for you. And you try to imagine a relationship like that, because that's the epitome of grace. And let me ask you, can you trust someone like that? Can you trust someone like that? To me, as I look at the origin of Abraham's faith and my faith and the way that God offers faith through Christ here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, what I want to be careful to separate for you and for me is how my faith begins. What I don't want for you and what I don't want for me is to mix my performance with God's promise of salvation and God's promise of his presence. I don't want us to mix, like we do with everything else that we trust in, a mixture of if I perform, then the promises of this thing will deliver. Promises of work, of a future, of a hobby, of whatever. I want you to consider and I want me to consider. As we look at the life of Abraham, yet here's a guy who is essentially sitting around and God engages him. He says, let me introduce to you an idea. I'm going to promise you something profound. And I'm going to be the one who does this. And I know you're going to fail. But in this relationship, you can't fail ultimately. You can make mistakes. You can sin intentionally. Sure. But you can't fail ultimately because you're not the one who started this. I'm reaching out to you. And so here's, the, here's what the rub is for me. When God asks me, when God asks you to do things that are hard, when he asks you to forgive the person maybe in this church or in your family who you've just been upset with for years, when God asks you to, to allow someone in your family who your kid is dating who you don't like, who you think doesn't have the best interest of your kid in mind, when God asks you to, to leave your work, when he says, you know what, I know you're going to be doing this career, I, w- I really want you to move in this direction. When, when there's hard stuff that comes across your plate, you're going to trust? You're going to trust that what God has in mind is the right thing? Because I'll tell you, I 
don't always. And when I don't, I realize I am mixing my confidence in me with my confidence in God. And if, if there is someone who exists who has no agenda for my life in that sense, someone who I cannot fail in this relationship, someone who in full grace has said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundant, and I just need you to trust me. Why would I not anchor my trust to that relationship? So here's the last question I have for you. Where is your trust anchored? Where is it anchored? For you, where is it anchored? There are times when the things that you want and the things that God wants are going to be not the same. It's very easy to justify why I should continue to do what I want instead of what God would have me to do. And I want to encourage you as we begin this series, Trust Me, I want to encourage you to see God as a God who, is a God who steps into your life and steps into my life at the point of ultimate grace and says, just, I have no agenda other than your best in mind. And I can deliver everything that you need. I, just, I want you to, to trust me. To me, that is the basis of Abraham's faith. Understanding that grace drives a relationship that I can trust. Now, next week, I want to look with you the comparison of two people whose lives went in totally different directions on this area of trust. I look forward to that conversation next week. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the time we could share together in the book of Genesis and seeing the life of Abraham and the challenge it is to step in where life becomes difficult and where I'd prefer to do that which I would prefer to do. I pray that you would help us here this morning to consider the basis of our own trust. Why is it that we trust anyone at all? And why is it that we might consider trusting God? I pray that you'd help us to see the implications of how trusting someone who has entered our lives with nothing but grace means that they are nothing but trustworthy completely. So I pray that you would help us to trust and reconsider again what it looks like for me, what it looks like for us, to be men and women of faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray.